This is New Year's Eve and I'm very happy to see uh, so many of you uh, deciding to join us here. Uh, presumably you're all aware that we have our uh, traditional end of year ritual of forgiveness and aspirations just before midnight and as a way of uh, hopefully bringing as much awareness as we can to this ending of the old, ending of 2016 and the beginning of 2017. And the uh, actual ritual that we engage with, which uh, somewhere towards midnight, Ajahnabhinanda will explain to everybody, uh, for your information, is it's not some ancient religious ritual uh, that we're using. This is something we invented. Um, I, I don't know how many decades ago we invented it, but uh, at least two or three decades ago. And uh, But it is interesting to see that this works. This is something that works for us. Um, if you lived in Thailand, you wouldn't be going to the monastery and burning bits of paper and offering uh, other bits of paper where, with your aspirations into the incense dish, it wouldn't be heard of. But this is something that somehow uh, emerged early on after we arrived in this country from Thailand, and here we are still doing it. And the fact that it works is, I think, significant and worth, also worth really taking time to consider that our engagement with spiritual practices, uh, if we don't give time to considering them carefully, uh, can become habitual. And instead of these uh, practices serving our faith in the possibility of freedom and, and nourishing our aspirations uh, for liberation, they can um, just become perfunctory habits. And then they're not working anymore. And maybe some of you have experienced this. I've certainly uh, observed it and uh, over the years seeing many people coming to the monastery practicing very diligently on one level but somehow not really feeling like they're receiving uh, a lot of benefit. So as we engage in this uh, uh, ritual of forgiveness and aspiration, I invite everybody to really consider carefully what are we doing this for? Why do we? Why did we come to Buddhist practice? To recollect that. Why are we involved with this? Just, just uh, feeling like we belong to the the Buddhist club uh, does not guarantee that we're necessarily going to be getting closer to freedom from suffering. What the Buddha wanted us to do was to exercise this reflective awareness that we have to consider carefully, okay, why, why am I doing this? Is this working? Is this relevant? Mm. Now, having said that, it doesn't mean to say that such a question is going to uh, give us an immediate, clear answer, but it, mm. it, it, it nourishes our investigation. Yeah. The heart has longings. All of us have longings. <coughs> yeah. Okay, sometimes we long to 
go to bed and have a good sleep or we long for a good meal or you know, we long to take a shower if we've been working whatever. But, but there are deeper longings, which we all know, the heart longings, uh, the spiritual longings. And to get in touch with those takes a different sort of uh, inquiry. And so that's what I'm uh, referring to this evening when I encourage asking this question, what are we engaged in this for? Why are we here? So maybe the response is not necessarily even a verbal response. Maybe it's a silent response, something that comes to us as a feeling, a feeling, a quiet sense of, yeah, this is the right direction. You know, when you're, I don't know, trying to make your way around a town or, or even through the countryside, you, you need to go in a certain direction. If you're out hiking somewhere and you haven't got a compass and you haven't got a map, but you're looking, you're checking. Sometimes you maybe get a feeling, oh, yeah, this is going the right direction. You may be right, you may be wrong. But that feeling informs us. And so I would suggest that on the spiritual journey that we also are tuning into this, this sense, this inner sense of, is this taking us in the right direction? We're not just believing in what... Uh, the so-called spiritual experts or professionals tell us or what books tell us or what's popular, but we're tuning into this inner sense of is this taking us in the right direction? And that's something we can only know for ourselves. So carefully considering is a, is a skill. Now, there's, there's willful effort where we have been taught what's right, I know when I was a boy, I was taught what's right and what's wrong, and I pretty much gave up on what was right and did a lot of what was wrong. It didn't seem to be working for me. But then, thankfully, coming across the Buddha's teachings, eventually uh, I realized that there is this spiritual discipline where the invitation is to find it for yourself. Yes, we can hear what others have discovered before us, and then they can teach us, and we can listen. But then the idea is to take it inwards, to turn our attention inwards, to feel inwards, to sense inwards, not just to think inwards, but to consider carefully inwards. Is this working? Now, uh, particularly, this is because this is New Year's Eve, and uh, as I was mentioning, of course, we have these. Uh, Oh, hopefully these wholesome aspirations which we're going to be considering and then offering up onto the shrine and uh, even people who are not here out there are making New Year's resolutions and setting up goals for the year ahead and it seems uh, perhaps it could be uh, useful to spend some time considering carefully how do we relate to goals? Goals give us an orientation. Goals give us a direction. Mm-hmm. Something the Buddha spoke very explicitly about. Atta samampat paniticca. The heart rightly directed. If we don't have a direction in our life, our heart energy, all our energy can be dissipated and unproductive. We can get lost. So being rightly directed is to some degree determined by how we set up the goal. So, and on this occasion, New Year's Eve, we're restating, reconsidering the goals that we have 
So, thinking about this for a while this evening, but not just what our goals might be, but how we how we relate to our goals. How do we view goals? How do we feel about goals? Hmm. Now, on a on a um, initial level. Yeah. have the impression that you know goals goals can make us feel good so i've got a goal yeah. i've got a goal to work towards and that's true but if we're not careful if we don't consider how we pick up the idea of the goal yeah. just because it makes us feel good we can think that clinging to it's going to make us feel better isn't this often the case that something, you know, some flavour of ice cream feels good, so we, we eat some more of it? Yeah, and we, we, we've had that attitude since, of course, since we were children. Uh, uh, this feels good. More makes me feel better. Still, uh, the more the merrier. Well, uh, of course, uh, in some areas of our life, you know, probably with eating and, and spending money, we've already learnt. That is not the case. More is not always the merrier. We do need to learn to be considerate in how we follow our desires. And and so in this case, considering how we relate to goals, the idea of a wholesome aspiration like the year 2017, I'm going to work on... Conscious equanimity. There was so much in 2016 that just pushed me to the edge. I don't know whether any of you felt like that. You know, I, I had a, a few disappointing moments in the last year and challenged my equanimity seriously. In fact, when it comes to giving talks on equanimity, I usually turn to Ajahn Abhinanda. When we have, uh, I'm, I'm a beginner when it comes to equanimity. Anyway, equanimity is the tenth of the ten paramis. Equanimity is a very difficult quality to cultivate. Often misunderstood, people think of equanimity as indifference. From the Buddhist perspective, equanimity is a manifestation of wisdom. Equanimity is even-mindedness. Equanimity is what balances out the other qualities, the heartful qualities of loving-kindness, of compassion, of sympathetic joy, those qualities without equanimity are dangerous. Or the other ten paramis, they, they come to fullness and completion with upeka or equanimity. And, and maybe some of us have had this experience. You can have loads of compassion and caring for the world, but when the world doesn't oblige us by going along with our wholesome hopes and aspirations, we can get very hurt and very disappointed and very frustrated and very upset. But is that really an obligation? I mean, if we were having wholesome aspirations for all beings being free from suffering and beings insist on suffering, is that really a reason for us to get upset? I mean, is it useful? Is it productive to feel exhausted and suffer from compassion fatigue? Not really. No, obviously not. You know, what's lacking? What's missing? What's missing is a wise perspective. What's missing, in Buddhist speak, is equanimity. So I resolve, I determine to set up this goal of cultivating equanimity. I'm really going to remind myself on a regular basis 
stick a magnet on the fridge or whatever you do with your resolutions and you know, try and remember this. And that's a wholesome aspiration. But the idea of the aspiration, that's the idea. That's, that's not the goal, is it? So I think this is perhaps certainly one of the points I'd like to make this evening and encourage us all to consider carefully that the idea of the goal is not the goal. Because we're such, I was going to say great thinkers, but we're not really great thinkers, we're excessive thinkers. You know, we, we think too much you know, and we, we really believe so much in our thoughts. And it's, a, it's an understandable dysfunction given the education that we've had uh, it's, it's nobody's fault. Well, it's ignorance's fault. We don't really understand the nature of thinking, so we cling to it, so we become our thoughts, and so we can't stop thinking. And so when it comes to the thought about my wholesome aspiration, it makes me feel good to think about equanimity. So what do I do? I habitually then go to the next step and think, well, I'll cling to it. I don't even think about it. It happens. I don't think about clinging to my wholesome aspiration. I just do it automatically. It's so quick. We're so habituated in our habits of clinging, we don't even know we've done it. Until a few weeks into 2017, and we've already lost it. We've already <coughs> broken our, our uh, aspirations or our, our wholesome uh, promises that we made to ourselves. And why did that happen? Well, it wasn't the fault with the goal. That's the point. The goal was wholesome, but it was the way we related to it. So I think there's something really worth dwelling on. We can, we can uh, really feel frustrated in our spiritual life, having all, setting up all these uh, really wholesome aspirations and making effort, but not noticing that there's something we're doing that's spoiling the effort that we're making. And what we're doing is clinging. So this uh, consideration of setting up goals, it really warrants a sensitive investigation. The idea of a goal is just like a, it's like a, a you know, like the story of the, the carrot and the donkey. You know, how do you motivate the donkey to move forward you know, everybody knows this, don't you? you? You strap a stick to the back of the donkey. Does everybody know this? Maybe some people don't know this. In fact, I heard this afternoon, Chase Ray in Italy told me to speak clearly because he wanted to listen to the Dhamma talk, and perhaps Abramina in Holland is listening as well. Well, maybe tomorrow I should be listening in. But the story of the, the donkey and the carrot is about how to get the donkey moving. You know, the carrot is not the goal, Right? You want to get the donkey to go in a certain direction. Getting a donkey to move is the goal. So you strap a stick to the back of the donkey and then you dangle a carrot from the stick and the donkey, which apparently is not very intelligent, thinks that by moving forward it's going to eat the carrot. And, of course, we all know that it doesn't work that way. But it does get the donkey moving. That's the point of the carrot. That's the point of the idea of our goals. That's the point of a lot of the ideas about liberation. That's the point of a lot of you know, the scriptures that we read, a lot of the teachings that we listen to. Yeah. 
The ideas that we have of the goal are not the goal. But hopefully they get us moving. Now, whether we're going to understand that or not is determined by how carefully we consider our relationship to the goal. It's not just a matter of getting the goal right. We can, we can be in search of the right goal. We can read endless books on the goal in spiritual practice. We can listen to endless talks and go on endless retreats and spend endless hours in, in meditation trying to achieve the goal. But if our relationship to the goal is not informed by understanding, if we haven't considered our relationship carefully, then we can spoil it. Now, of course, we all start out like this. Pointing this out is not to say that we we shouldn't uh, cling. We all cling. It's how we start out. It's how how children learn to walk. Before children grow up, they cling to mum and dad. But they suffer in the process. Hopefully, in the process, they learn from the suffering. Like, there's a stage when children see mum and dad going off to work and, and they start crying because they think mum and dad are leaving. They don't understand properly, right? They don't understand, according to reality, they don't understand that mum and dad are coming back in the evening. The truth is mum and dad are coming back. The truth is there's no reason to be upset. That's the reality. That's actuality. The children are not being abandoned by their parents. In fact, mum and dad are going out to earn money to help make their kids' life more comfortable. There's absolutely no reason in terms of reality for the child to get upset, but the child gets upset. Why? Because the child doesn't understand. So likewise, in the beginning, in our spiritual journey, we don't understand. We, we read in the books, we hear from the teachers about the goal of the spiritual life, and so we make these efforts to set up the right goal, but if we're not considering carefully, then again, the way we relate to the goal means we spoil it. It's really important to keep checking as we go along and see, how are we relating to our goals in practice? Apparent reality and actuality are very different things. Like the traditions that we belong to the spiritual tradition. On one level, it gives us a real sense of security, feeling like we belong to something really good. I feel hugely grateful to come across this teaching. I was thinking just, it was just yesterday actually, I was thinking of my my adolescent years. (laughs) I was thinking way back and going over some of, what happened in my adolescent years and thinking, what a mess. Uh, I actually thought about writing it down. I thought, oh, this could be interesting. And then I decided it was such a mess that I was just better just forget about it. It was such a mess. And I, what would have happened if I never came across these teachings? It's just, it's a horrible thought. Absolutely horrible thought. So I have so much gratitude for coming across these teachings and such good fortune to have been dragged, almost dragged screaming to my first meditation retreat. I couldn't stand religion. 
I, I had a stomach full of organized religion, and the last thing I wanted to do was go and sit with some Buddhist monk who uh, wouldn't let me eat in the evening and, and expected me to bow to him, for goodness sake. You know, he wouldn't even talk to me before I bowed to him. And I was living on a commune in northern New South Wales and with a bunch of very beautiful people. This, this young American friend of mine from Sydney turned up and wanted to persuade me to go on this meditation retreat with him, and I really did not want to go. But, what, wow, it was one of, absolutely one of the best things I ever did going on that retreat, and I am so grateful. And, and then eventually somehow running out of money in Thailand, because really I wanted to go to Japan, which was, you know, that was the, the groovy form of Buddhism. That was the ones who had the aesthetics sorted out. But actually I ran out of money in Thailand and got stuck there, and I'm so grateful <laughs> I got stuck in Thailand. Got a job teaching English, and... And met these really nice monks and ended up spending five years there. So I have a, a lot of gratitude and appreciation for the tradition and the teachings that um, I'm now committed to. And, but even an appreciation for the teachings and the tradition, if we're not careful, if we don't carefully consider our relationship to the teachings, we can be clinging to them. Our initial relationship with it makes us feel good. We've discovered something that really works. This is relevant. This teaching invites me to question everything. You know, I don't have to compromise my intelligence by going along with something just because somebody said it's good for me. Yeah. Everything this, teacher, this teaching tells me to do actually is beneficial. So we can love the Dhamma. But like you know, people that we might love, we can also get attached and get heedless and taken for granted. So once again, as we um, go through this evening and engage in this ritual of, of uh, forgiveness and aspiration, exercising this ability we have to consider carefully not all human beings actually have a conscious ability to consider carefully. A lot of human beings you know, are in reactive mode most of the time, pretty much all the time in some cases. But that's because they haven't recognized that there's this faculty of, of reflective awareness you know, that we have. You know. The Buddha taught about sati over and over and over again. We don't have, or we don't exercise sati, if we don't exercise this reflective awareness, then whatever other good things we might be doing, we're missing out. And so even our relationship to this tradition, as we translate this tradition, which is what we're doing. I, I mentioned in the beginning this evening, this ritual that we invented some decades ago, and we're using this is, this is partly our effort to translate the tradition, Tradition, thankfully, lasted for 2,500 and something years out in Asia, and here we are now, we're bringing it to this country, and we're very fortunate, we're very grateful. But we're not actually doing the same thing as our brothers and sisters in Thailand and Burma and Sri Lanka. Yeah. Yeah. We couldn't be doing the same thing because we're not the same people. Yeah. We're not supposed to be doing the same thing because our our conditioning, our background, our minds, our habits uh, are not the same. We need to translate this, but as we translate it, we need to be exercising great care 
great sensitivity. Again, if we're not careful, we're not sensitive, we maybe throw out something really, really good just because it doesn't suit us. Or if we're not careful, if we're not sensitive, maybe we just cling to something because we happen to like it when it's not good for us. Maybe just some, some empty ritual that it's quite okay to let go of. The exercise of translating the tradition is essential if we're going to get in touch with the spirit. The tradition is the form. That's the outside. That's not the point. It has its place, but it's not the point. The point is the spirit, the message, the Dhamma, and that's what we're looking for. But to get to the Dhamma, to get to the point, to get to the spirit, we use the tradition. We use the forms. In our case, all of our practice, actually, all of our effort is contributing to this exercise in translating. Now, if we don't do it carefully, yes, we can make mistakes. I was remembering recently how I've often wondered, like in some Buddhist traditions, they, they are non-Theravadan ones, you know, we are the Theravadan tradition or what's sometimes called the Southern School or sometimes less respectfully called the Lesser Vehicle. In other traditions, they refer to the Buddha's disciples, Sariputra and Moggallana, the Buddha's chief disciples, there's a right-hand man and left-hand man, they refer to these disciples as the sound hearers, which is a, a bit of a, a, a put-down, really. And I sometimes wondered if this, this didn't come about because in the Pali language, these chief disciples are referred to as sāvakas, in fact, in the chanting we just did, in the third reflection, on the reflection of the, of the Sangha, we talk about the Savaka Sangho, or the community of disciples. Savaka generally means disciples or followers. But the etymology of Savaka, if you translate the word Savaka literally, it means one who listens. Because that's what disciples do. And you, you maybe you've noticed those uh, rather beautiful images you often find of Venerable Sariputra and Moggallana on the left and right-hand side of the Buddha. You see there's one in our reception room over there where the disciple is sitting there listening with one ear turned towards the Buddha. And that's what disciples do. This is before, of course, they had books that they read. Yeah. And now they just sort of stounced over looking at the Access to Insight page on the internet. They're reading. <laughs> yeah. But the etymology on this word sāvaka is one who listens. And I don't know, it occurred to me anyway, perhaps an overly literal translation of that is what led to a really rather unfortunate dismissive attitude towards the Buddha's chief disciples, Venerable Sariputta and Venerable Moggallana, calling them merely sound hearers. They didn't really get the true message. You know, they were just hearing the form and not getting the spirit. Anyway, the effort to check what we're doing as we go along, how we approach to our meditation, how we approach the techniques that we use, the forms, how we approach the bowing, how we approach the chanting. We're allowed, we're invited to feel how we feel about these things. If we're just blindly following a tradition and a technique, even though in the beginning our aspiration may have been wholesome, it may not be serving us as it did when we started out. 
Sometimes it seems to me from talking to uh, people who've been meditating for many years and, and also in my own experience with meditation over the years that there are different approaches to practice. And some of you will have heard me talk before about you know, what could be considered a spiritual typology. You know, you know, what type of character are we? What, what orientation do we have in our practice? Yeah. But some people, if, if you give them the idea of a goal and tell them to strive towards it, it really encourages them. If you set out stages along the path, if you have regular interviews with them and check to see that they're following the stages, then they feel energized, they feel enthused. Whereas other people, if you give them the idea of a goal, it might work in the beginning, but after a while, all this striving and trying actually closes them down. Instead of the heart expanding and opening and the mind becoming brighter and energized, what happens, they feel more and more confused and disoriented and and discouraged and despairing and less motivated. So some years ago it occurred to me that there are those people for whom it's better to talk about practice as focused on the source rather than the goal. We can still have goals in practice, even if we have a feeling for being source-oriented in our practice, even if we have a feeling for trusting at what's there behind all conditions, even if that orientation makes sense to us, we can still pick up goals, we can still have an idea of the goal, but it's a very different relationship we have to the goal than those who are really fundamentally goal-oriented. If we've been working on a meditation technique for some time and maybe it inspired us in the beginning and, and we got energized by it and, and then at some stage in the journey it stopped working, instead of perceiving the sense of confusion, instead of perceiving the sense of, I don't know what I'm doing, as an obstruction, we can also dare to let go of our idea of the goal and simply trust. The characteristic of those who are more goal-oriented in their practice is that they exercise willful determination to achieve. The characteristic of those who are more source-oriented in their practice Exercise trust. Trust in what's, what is. And this is a very different orientation in practice. I'm mentioning this particularly tonight because I met for many Westerners who are generally overly willful in practice to start off with, yeah. feeling that they have permission to let go of striving to achieve the goal letting go of striving altogether and rather cultivating a conscious sense of receptivity. Trusting in that. 
Instead of investing all our energy and trusting in our willful manipulation uh, of conditions and getting more sophisticated now in our techniques, daring to let go of techniques. Now, that's not being disrespectful. It could sound disrespectful, but it doesn't have to be disrespectful. Like lots of things my parents taught me that I, I, uh, I, I, I turned away from a long time ago. Yeah. But I'm not going to be disrespectful to my parents. Yeah. Yeah. We can show great respect for where we started out, like the Buddha in his own uh, spiritual journey, you know, all the teachers that he, he trained with for years, he trained with. But then eventually, realizing that none of these teachers had what he was looking for, he left them. And what did he do? sat under the Bodhi tree and eventually made the determination, I'm going to figure this out for myself. Well, in a way, symbolically, we all also need to do the same thing. And also, what did the Buddha do? Take note of what the Buddha did after his enlightenment. The first thing he did was, how can I benefit my old teachers? And when it came time for the Buddha to share the benefit of his realisation, the first thing is, where are my old teachers so I can go and share the benefit of my practice with them? He certainly didn't say, well, those guys were a bunch of losers. <laughs> that wasn't that attitude. It was just gratitude for his previous teachers. So we can be fully respectful for where we started out in practice, but as practice goes along, it might be the case that we need to make some radical adjustments to the kind of effort that we're making and perhaps let go of this willful striving to get somewhere, to overcome our obstructions, to get rid of our hindrances, and trust in the power of awareness itself. We can be concentrating on the content of awareness, the wholesome and unwholesome content of awareness, all the good stuff and all the bad stuff. We can be busily... You know, manipulating conditions, trying to fix this problem that we call me, which is riddled with defilements, ignoring the fact that the perception of me is a fundamental mistake. Yeah. This whole idea of me and my problems, we're so intoxicated with it, our hearts are so contracted around this misperception of reality that we become obsessed with it. And if we're overly willful in practice, that really is a very likely predicament. And we can spend all of our life trying to fix something that's not real to start off with. Now, it's not the case that this experience of me doesn't appear real. As I was saying before, apparent reality is apparent reality. A rainbow really does look like a rainbow. Absolutely. A rainbow really does look like a rainbow. But because we have done some study, we know that it's an optical illusion. Likewise, the experience of a solid, substantial selfhood really does feel like something. But if we do some study, if we do some practice, if we do some investigation, maybe we'll come to realise that that's, that's the result of the refraction of experience when it passes through our deluded minds. That's a misperception. Yeah. It's like a dream. Yeah. 
we can be having a heart attack you know, in our dream world because of something frightening happening in the dream. And nothing's happening at all. Not really. You know, no tiger chasing us. We might have the feeling in our dream, we might have the perception in our dream that there's a tiger chasing us, have a heart attack and die. Well, that's rather sad. Yeah. It wasn't a tiger at all. It was a hallucination. Well, likewise, the misperception we have about me and my problems, and often also me and my spiritual journey, is all a tragic misperception. But if we're addicted to our willful manipulation of conditions, which all of us are thoroughly conditioned to do in our early life, then we may import that dysfunctional approach to spiritual life and compound it in our meditation exercises. Now, if that makes any sense to us, then what's called for is careful consideration of the way we approach practice. For our Asian brothers and sisters, they come to this tradition, they come to this teaching equipped with a heart of faith. They trust in the Dhamma. I don't know how many of us have that. I certainly didn't have it. I, I doubted everything. You know, I lived with these great teachers, Ajahn Tate, Ajahn Chah. I still doubted them. You know, I doubted everything. Doubted myself. Doubted the tradition. Yeah. But thankfully, thankfully, Ajahn Chah was one of those source-oriented teachers who recognized that even doubt is not a problem. You've got to meet yourself where you find yourself. Not reject yourself where you find yourself. Meet yourself. Receive yourself where you find yourself and move on from there. Now, from the perspective of source-oriented practice, that's what we can do with doubt. That's what we can do with fear. That's what we can do with not knowing. That's what we can do with the sense of failure. That's what we can do with a mind that is a complete mess. That's what we can do with a life that's a complete mess. We meet ourselves there. We receive ourselves there. And transform all that energy, all that passion, into something that fuels practice. Now, if, on the other hand, we're still hanging on to a technique that we started out with that we happen to believe in and that uh, some inspiring teacher told us was good for us and out of loyalty to that teacher we keep trying to make that technique work well we could be hurting ourselves now I say that with great respect to those teachers and to those techniques because many people do benefit from them but also I would like to uh, encourage everybody to consider carefully how we use these techniques and these teachings. Spiritual techniques are really powerful tools. Antibiotics are dangerous. Spiritual medicine is even more dangerous. Antibiotics, when they're used correctly, like recently I had this chest infection, and I don't know if I didn't have my doxycycline, I don't know where I'd be today. Probably wouldn't be giving the stomach talk. You know, they might be laying me out and doing the, the funeral chanting. You know, I had a bit of a bad chest infection there. I really love antibiotics. Now, I'm not giving medical advice here. You know, <laughs> you've got to sort that out. But you know, antibiotics have their place. Spiritual techniques and disciplines have their place. But if we're overly willful, as many of us are, and we don't slow down enough to carefully consider the way we relate to the spiritual exercises, like, for instance, setting up a goal in practice, 
If we don't slow down enough, if we're not exercising enough gentleness, if we're not exercising enough patience, or again, what many of you will have heard me talk about, exercising the soft powers of the spiritual life, if we're overly impressed with the hard powers, with zeal, with enthusiasm, with conquering, with achieving, as we can be, then we can be spoiling the good effort that we're making. So this uh, exercise that we're engaged with, all of us engaged with it, whether we know it or not, of translating the tradition that we've inherited, it's easy to make mistakes. And if we don't slow down enough, then it's easy to miss the details. Lots of examples in that and in daily life living in this community here where we have Italian, German, Mexican, the Polish guy's gone. French, the French guy's gone as well. We have all sorts of languages in this community, endless misunderstandings, endless misunderstandings, regularly. And where does it come from? Not because bad people, just misunderstandings. Usually, actually, often because we don't slow down enough and pay attention and really listen to each other. What is he really saying? Do I really understand? Even in a community that's supposed to be based on cultivation of reflective awareness, we don't always do that. We're in reactive mode a lot of the time, too fast. It's important to slow down. You might have heard me talk before about that example of you know, when there's a misunderstanding. One of our monks at Amarawati was asked by one of the nuns there you know, how he was doing. And, and uh, he, was a, he was an English monk and she was a German nun. And, and uh, she, she greeted him and said, Good morning, venerable so-and-so, how are you today? And he said, Marvellous, I'm high as a kite which, you know, if you're English, you understand what it means to be high as a kite. He was having a, you know, good day. You know? Maybe he had a nice meditation. Or maybe Ajahn Sumedho gave an inspiring awada at the morning meditation or something. And several hours later, she said, Oh, I'm so sorry, Venerable, I couldn't find any medicine for you. And I said, well, What are you looking for medicine for? And she, she thought that he had said that he was suffering from high as a kite which I'm told, if you're German, means sore throat. Is that right? Yeah, strep throat or something, you know. (laughs) You know, we're always misunderstanding. We even misunderstand ourselves, and that's really what I'm pointing to this evening. We can have wholesome aspirations as we move towards midnight and we go through those people that we want to ask for forgiveness from and those people we want to offer forgiveness to. And then, on the other piece of paper, those wholesome aspirations. Let's not just focus on the aspirations themselves, but the relationship we have to them. If we're clinging to this, if we're... If we're clinging to the idea of the aspiration, if we're clinging to the idea of the goal, we spoil it. 
Like I said, you know, with equanimity in the beginning of the talk this evening, uh, we, can, we can have compassion, but if we cling to the compassion, we'll burn out. How do we learn how to not cling to compassion? Well, we balance it with equanimity. How do we cultivate equanimity? Well, we exercise careful consideration. How do we exercise careful consideration? Well, thankfully, the Buddha and the teachers and the tradition have given us guidelines. That's what we do the chanting in the morning. Now, I am the owner of my kamma, heir to my kamma, born of my kamma, related to my kamma, abide supported by my kamma. Whatever kamma I shall do, for good or for ill, of that I shall be the heir. All beings are the owners of their kamma, heir to their kamma, related to their kamma, abide supported by their kamma. Whatever kamma they shall do, for good or for ill, of that they shall be the heirs. Okay? Now why are we thinking about that? This law of kamma is profoundly important. If we don't understand that we are each individually responsible for our intentional actions of body, speech and mind, if we don't understand that, then we, we don't have a sense of the boundary. Mm-hmm. We start feeling like we're responsible for all sorts of things that we're not responsible for. We start feeling like we're going to change things that we don't have any ability to change. Mm-hmm. So, once again, as we... Uh, Move towards midnight tonight. Uh, encourage everybody to use this opportunity to be together in quietness here in the Dhamma Hall, to reflect, to consider carefully, not just the goals that we're setting up for ourselves, but also how we're approaching those goals. And thank you very much this evening for your attention. <laughs> Sad